Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And we are now in our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city that we believe is the most haunted in America. Sorry, but I don't have anything funny to say to kick this one off. This episode delves into a part of the city's history that far too many of us remember. A time of disaster, death, corruption, and cover-ups unlike anything that New Orleans had seen before. And yes, it left some hauntings behind. This is not the first time that the words disaster and New Orleans have been used together during this season of the podcast. We've talked frequently about the harsh conditions, the weather, and the illnesses that plagued both the early settlers and those who worked to turn New Orleans into a modern city. From the earliest days of the city, it was almost annually infected with some kind of epidemic that usually came aboard the ships from the West Indies, Cuba, and Mexico. In 1832, the city was devastated by a cholera epidemic. Dr. Theodore Clapp, a minister who came to New Orleans a decade before, wrote about the epidemic. In his journal, he noted, quote, Many persons, even of fortune and popularity, died in their beds without aid, unnoticed and unknown, and lay there for days unburied. In almost every house can be seen the sick, the dying, and the dead. All the stores, banks, and places of business were closed. Sounds kind of familiar right now, doesn't it? But it gets worse as he continues. There were no means, no instruments for carrying on the ordinary affairs of business for all the drays, carts, carriages, hand and common wheelbarrows, as well as hearses, were employed in the transportation of corpses. Words cannot describe my sensations when I first beheld the awful sight of carts being driven to the graveyard and there upturned and their contents discharged as so many loads of lumber without a single mark of mourning and respect. And that was by no means the only plague to come to New Orleans. Between 1817 and 1860, there were 23 yellow fever epidemics that left more than 28,000 men, women, and children dead. The worst of them was in 1853 and by itself killed more than 12,000 people. Yellow fever, unknown to people at the time, was carried by the bite of the mosquito. New Orleans used rainwater cisterns to catch the water from the roofs of houses for drinking. The still clean water was a perfect breeding ground for the mosquitoes. In 1868, a chapel was built to St. Roche by Father Peter Thevis to fulfill a promise he'd made after his congregation was spared by yellow fever. Its altar contained a wooden statue of the saint with his faithful dog. At one time, the shrine's walls were hung with countless replicas of limbs, discarded crutches, and relics brought there by the faithful to testify to cures that were brought about by the intercession of St. Roche. But his prayers were not enough to keep the disease from returning to New Orleans over and over again throughout the end of the 19th century, killing thousands more. In the summer of 1878 alone, more than 27,000 people died from the illness. The city had its last epidemic in 1905 when it was finally discovered that the illness was being caused by mosquitoes. 
the health service began a new treatment and eliminated the mosquitoes using volunteers to check every house and cistern in the city. They salted gutters, drained pools, and thousands of lives were saved with what was called a shotgun quarantine. And yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. Leave your house, there'll be a shotgun waiting for you. Only 423 people died that summer compared to the thousands of the past, and New Orleans never had another outbreak of the terrible disease. But of course, nature has not been kind to the city. It was built on a swamp, after all, below sea level in some spots, and was infested with every kind of pest you can imagine. And when the city was built, the early architectural materials were not exactly conducive to long life. The early French colony was built completely from wood and timber. And since all lighting and cooking was done with open flames, well, it was often a very flammable place to live. As mentioned in an earlier episode, one of the city's greatest fires began on Good Friday of 1788. Because it was a religious holiday, the church bells were not allowed to ring a warning to the city. The fire soon burned out of control and destroyed most of the town, including the monastery of the monks who wouldn't ring the alarm bells. Only the Ursuline convent survived because it was built from brick and tile. Well, New Orleans was rebuilt by the Spanish using brick, plaster, and tile, creating what we still call the French Quarter today, even though, well, it's definitely Spanish. But disasters in New Orleans were not just diseases and fires. The location in New Orleans had caused problems since the beginning. Only a year after the original settlement was laid out, the Mississippi River flooded the community, leading to the construction of the first levees. But, well, as we know, they didn't always work. The first attempts to keep water out of New Orleans used open ditches that emptied into Bayou St. John, which drained into Lake Pontchartrain. But between 1735 and 1927, there were 38 floods in the lower section of the river. Nine times the river flooded into New Orleans, not because the levees failed, but because water flowed into the city from other breaks. A break in Kenner in 1816 caused water to flood as far as Charter Street, and another in 1849 flooded 220 squares in New Orleans, driving 12,000 people from their homes. In 1871, a break at the site of the present spillway above New Orleans raised the level of the lake and broke a levee at Hagen Avenue, causing the city to flood. During a spring of heavy flooding in 1927, levees had to be dynamited to save the city. As the Mississippi River rose, panic seized New Orleans, even though everything that could be done was done to strengthen the levees. It came to be realized it wasn't enough. The people of St. Bernard Parish were evacuated and their levee was destroyed to lower the level of the river before it swamped the city. After the flood of 1927, the U.S. government began taking responsibility for flood control. New spillways and levees were built, old ones were strengthened, and the waters were supposed to divert before they threatened New Orleans. But as we'll soon see, the best laid plans of the federal government, well, they often fall apart. On September 29, 1915, a hurricane struck the Mississippi Gulf Coast and New Orleans was battered by more than 120 mile an hour winds. Several people were killed and the city sustained $13 million in damage. Over the next two weeks, more than 22 inches of rain fell, destroying homes that had lost their roofs in the hurricane winds. 50 years later, in September of 1965, Hurricane Betsy roared out of the Gulf of Mexico toward Louisiana. The center of the storm passed just 30 miles southwest of the city. Winds of more than 150 miles per hour struck New Orleans. There were other hurricanes to hit the city in the years that followed, like Camille in 1969, 
and Bob, which passed just west of New Orleans in 1979. But it was Betsy that proved to the government and city leaders that New Orleans was not prepared for a massive storm. Betsy brought tidal surges, which overtopped the protective levees in the lower parts of the city and caused a disastrous flood. The terrible winds, which accounted for about half the damage to the city, caused the river to rise nine feet in only a few hours. In the wake of the storm, more than 13,000 homes and businesses in the poorest sections of the city were flooded, some to a depth of seven feet or more. And then, in 2005, came Katrina. Hurricane Katrina first struck the Gulf Coast on August 29th as a Category 3 storm. It would soon surge into Category 5, but weakened before striking land. When it made landfall, it buffeted the region with winds between 120 and 140 miles an hour. The winds and rain caused damage throughout the city, but it was the aftermath of Katrina that truly devastated New Orleans. The flood should never have happened. Yes, New Orleans is barely above sea level, and it's surrounded by water and swampland, but the levees and seawalls that were built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers were supposed to protect the city. The greatest fear in any storm was not that the levees would break, but, like in 1965, that a surge would cause waters to rise above the levees. As Katrina took aim at the city, the mayor issued a mandatory evacuation. About 80% of the residents managed to leave, with another 10,000 headed to the Superdome for shelter. Others decided to ride out the storm at home. Katrina passed, but then the disaster occurred. The storm surge breached the levees and drainage canals and flooded over 70% of the city, mostly Lakeview, St. Bernard Parish, and the Ninth Ward. And that's when things got really bad. The federal government stalled assistance to the city for days, allegedly because officials were unclear how bad the damage was or how many people needed help. The Coast Guard began rescuing people stranded on their roofs and inside their homes with helicopters and boats, but it was locals with boats who got most people to safety or what was passing for safety. A large part of the city looked like a war zone. Police officers had fled the city in advance of the storm and looters roamed the streets. Another 15,000 people headed for the Superdome where food and supplies were already running out. Now with more than 25,000 people inside, the roof was starting to leak and chaos reigned. The Superdome was evacuated and thousands headed to the convention center hoping to find help but just found more people who were also looking for food, drinking water, and medical supplies. Hospitals had no power and needed to get their patients out of the city. Everything was shut down, even in parts of the city not affected by the flooding. And eventually, National Guard units were sent in from all over the country to lend assistance and maintain order. It was frightening to see in 2005 how quickly things could break down in a city that was devastated and then left to fend for itself with inadequate food, shelter, and services. In time, national outreach and fundraising began as the city sat underwater for weeks. The federal government refused to take the blame. City officials refused to explain how it allowed everything to fall so quickly apart. And even today, 15 years later, the exact death toll from Katrina remains unknown. Although we do know that at least 1,800 people died because of the storm and the flooding that followed it. There is still no memorial listing the names of Katrina victims, still no way to know how many remain uncounted or unidentified, and still no agreement on how to count victims if an event like Katrina hits the United States again, as we're now finding out with the coronavirus. Fifteen years later, we're still in the dark. Death was inescapable in New Orleans in the weeks after the levees failed, for the people who remained there, for the first responders, and to a horrified nation. 
News outlets headlined the latest counts of the dead and occasionally showed grisly images of bodies floating in flooded neighborhoods. Like many efforts in the wake of Katrina, counting the dead was hampered mostly by bureaucracy. The official effort to recover bodies had stalled as local and federal agencies decided who would do so and how. Eventually, procedures were set, but collecting, identifying, and counting the dead was an emotionally wrenching, often gruesome, and sometimes thankless job. Workers had to walk through hospitals where the power had been knocked out. Extreme heat decomposed the bodies. The sheer size of affected areas meant each body might have to go through several checkpoints on its way to the morgue. By its own admission, Louisiana never finished counting the dead. One year after Katrina, the state's medical examiner pledged to keep working until every victim was identified. Four years after that, he confessed he could not get the time or resources to finish the job. The true number, officials said, will probably not ever be known. The toll on New Orleans was not just from the body count. It came from the loss of the city's lifeblood and culture as well. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced by the storm. Many moved to Texas to live in FEMA shelters or fled to cities where friends and relatives offered shelter and work. Many of them simply never came back. They took with them the soul of the city, the food, the music, and everything that brings New Orleans to life. It was years before the bars, restaurants, music, and tourism recovered, although many will tell you it still has not recovered even today. Katrina became a cultural touchstone of the city's history, before and after Katrina. I still remember Mardi Gras in 2006. It was an almost eerie event that tried hard to recreate the joy of years gone by, but didn't quite succeed. But still, those who love the cities lined the streets to show support of a New Orleans that was done, but not out, that had been beaten, but was not giving up. Katrina will always be remembered as the city's darkest hour, and as we know, it's usually those hours that give birth to stories of ghosts and hauntings. In the aftermath of the hurricane, National Guard troops from across the country were sent to New Orleans to lend a hand. One night, several of them were driving down Canal Street, and the driver saw a group of disheveled pedestrians in his headlights. They seemed to just come out of nowhere. Going too fast to avoid them, he braced for the impact, but they suddenly disappeared. Other responders who came to New Orleans found their own ghosts. If you walk far enough along St. Charles Avenue, you'll find the Sophie B. Wright Charter School on Napoleon Avenue. After Katrina, members of the California National Guard used the building as a staging area for assignments throughout the city. Many of the guardsmen reported strange goings-on, including unexplainable noises, eerie shadows, and even the ghost of a young girl. Sergeant Robin Hairston told a local television station, quote, I was in my sleeping bag and I opened my eyes and in the doorway was a little girl. It wasn't my imagination. Her story was confirmed by specialist Rosalie Lenore, who said, quote, I was using the restroom and I just saw a little shadow kind of looming in front of me. A third soldier claimed that when she opened the cleaning supply closet, she saw a little girl laughing at her, who disappeared. A few years ago, reports began to circulate that New Orleans' former charity hospital was haunted. The hospital was closed after Katrina, and yet nurses, orderlies, and other staff members at nearby New Orleans Hospital began reporting seeing lights turning on and off 
inside the abandoned building. At the time of the sightings, there had been no electricity in the hospital for more than a decade. A nurse was the first to see the lights, what appeared to be a small Christmas tree, in one of the hospital's upper windows. An anesthesia technician who also worked at New Orleans Hospital spotted them too. The police wrote the whole thing off as a break-in, not explaining the lack of electricity in the building, but others believe the building is haunted by the spirits of those who died there after Katrina. And then there's the story of Vera Smith. No one knows for sure what happened to Vera. The 65-year-old went out on August 29th, the night after Katrina made landfall. According to her common-law husband, Max Keene, she went out for cigarettes and beer and didn't come back. The next morning, her body was found at the intersection of Jackson and Magazine. She was probably hit by a drunk driver who fled the scene, but what is known for sure is that it happened in the middle of Katrina and emergency services were focused on the living, not the dead. Vera's body lay unattended and abandoned. Her husband, elderly and in bad health himself, put a sheet over her body, unsure of what to do in the days of chaos. After five days in New Orleans heat, a man named John Lee decided something more serious was required. He went to the police, begging them to take care of the body. Well, the cops couldn't be bothered and wouldn't let Lee move the body himself, so he buried her on the spot, a makeshift grave at the corner of Jackson and Magazine. A few neighbors helped out and covered her body with a white tarp, which they weighted down with bricks. Another neighbor, an artist named Maggie McKelney, painted a cross on the tarp in a few words, Here lies Vera. God help us. Vera's body was later recovered and cremated, and her remains were sent to relatives in Texas, but she was not forgotten in New Orleans. The people who knew Vera made a memorial for her, created by local artist Simon Hardewald and had a simple iron cross with a clock face that was wound with barbed wire. Above the clock were the words, Vera died August 29, 05. It might have been then that Vera's ghost began to appear, but no one knows. Again, what we do know is that the owner of the property, unable to sell it, came to believe that Vera's memorial was some sort of voodoo charm that prevented him from making a sale, so he destroyed the memorial with a sledgehammer. But Vera was not going to leave so easily. She became a symbol of those lost after the storm. In a city filled with tragedies, a woman who had been homeless, a drifter, struggling with alcohol, but beloved by all who knew her, was a woman worth remembering. Neighbors and friends told stories of Vera's costume jewelry, her elaborate dresses, her brightly colored wigs, and her two small dogs. She was a character, a New Orleans character. People loved her, and they knew she'd deserve more in life and in death. Well, trouble followed. At the same corner where Vera died and her memorial was destroyed, a two-story burger restaurant called Charcoal opened up. Now, this was not your typical burger joint. Their tagline was, quote, as gourmet as a burger gets. And you could choose between beef, chicken, veggie, elk, buffalo, venison, shrimp, or salmon between your buns. <laughs> but the restaurant's opening did not go well. A brand new meat grinder stopped working, water lines inexplicably broke, and other mishaps occurred. Charcoal's had a tough time getting established in the community and business was slow. The idea that the place was haunted started as a joke among employees, but after a year of bizarre happenings, the staff, well, they weren't laughing anymore. They were now taking it seriously. Locals knew that this was the corner where the body of Vera Smith had been found. What if she had never left? The reports about a haunting at the restaurant were taken so seriously that a local television channel dispatched a film crew. I mean, this is New Orleans after all. The owners decided that if Vera had remained behind, they wanted to do something to honor her. They contacted artist Simon Hardevelt, 
who'd made the original memorial for Vera and asked him to create a second one, this one attached to the restaurant, in hopes it might quiet her spirit. Simon built a memorial that includes a working fountain and bright colors, something the very colorful Vera would have loved. There are those who claim the ghost story was pure fiction and used Vera's death as a marketing ploy to boost business, but even if true, it's something that New Orleans has always done, making myths for a city that is constantly changing. When the owner told reporters that Vera was the heart and soul of the restaurant and they wanted customers to support it to show their love for her, it really didn't matter if the story was true. What mattered was that Vera was getting the recognition that she deserved, and in a larger sense, the story was offering recognition to the hundreds of people, named and unnamed, who died during Katrina, the darkest hours in New Orleans history. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Okay, so are you good to go then? Yep, I'm ready. Alrighty. 
Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in the middle of season four of the podcast, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Actually getting closer to the end. Yeah. Uh, we're all, I think, past the middle now. So yeah, we're getting there. We are getting there slowly but surely and yeah. um, in different ways. That, again, people <laughs> might have noticed last time um, we mentioned it was our first episode that we were recording remotely. Um, and so now this is our second episode that we're recording remotely. Yes. And uh, it's very it's very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't really like it. Like everything else connected to this crap, uh, I don't like this either. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. There isn't anything that I like about it, honestly. So... And it just keeps getting worse. Well, I don't know about worse, but it just keeps being a huge pain. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said last time that, you know, my life hadn't changed that much because I wasn't really doing too much and I was okay with it. I think I've officially cracked. Um, yeah. Finally, it took a while. And I know some people have been like crazy locked down for like 60 days. And, you know, I still get to like go on walks and I can go to the grocery store with a mask and stuff like that. So I know other people have it worse, but it's uh, it's finally started to get to me, you know. Yeah, I think I, I could say the same thing on that, um, you know, because at first I was like, you know, hey, this is something I've, <laughs> I was made for, you know, social right. distancing. I don't want to talk to anybody anyway. All I have to do is read and watch movies. And now I'm just bored out of my mind. Um, I, I was doing one of those live streams last night that I do every Friday night uh, from the Facebook page. And I told everybody, I said, you know, this is the only real practice for social skills that I have now. <laughs> Yeah. Are these talking to a group of people who I'm not really talking to because all they can do to answer me is send messages, you know, as I'm talking. And it's like, this is crazy. You know, I'm so used to or I had gotten used to being, you know, every weekend going out and doing, you know, one of the dinners or something. And then this is <laughs> this is really this is just all every week just runs into the next and there's nothing going on. Uh, all I can do now is look forward to July. So mid-July, we are one way or another, we are having the events we have scheduled if I have to move them across the river. Uh, although, I, you know, rumor has it that Alton will be open by then. So we'll see. But um, nice. even if they're not, we're having them anyway, because this is enough's enough. So I've reached yep. my limit. <laughs> I, I understand. And we t we're talking about events. Um, most people probably know this, but we, we have some unfortunate news. You want to go ahead and share that? Oh, yeah, I can. Um, we just announced a couple of days ago that we're going to have to uh, postpone the Haunted America conference for this year. Um, we're going to move it to June 25th and 26th of 2021. So, um, it wasn't an easy decision for us to make, but we, we kind of had to make it, you know, um, we know that, you know, our attendees save and plan and look forward to the conference and, and, you know, it's the biggest event of the year for, for American hauntings. So we delayed this as long as we could in hopes that, you know, the, the virus situation would lessen by late June. And, and I honestly believe that it will have lessened by late June, but not in time enough to fit the phases of the governor of Illinois' um, plans yeah. for this year. Um, and even even the, even the Madison County's plans, where Alton is located, I don't think would have been open enough for us to have the conference. And, you know, the other thing was is that we, you know, we really had to think about it because even if it was open and, you know, we've got 300 and some people there, how would we feel if somebody got sick? You know, it, and it would yeah. be, we'd feel like it was our fault. I mean, it wouldn't be 
legally, I guess people don't have to come, but we'd feel bad about it. So um, anyway, we know it's disappointing to everybody and it's super disappointing to us because with all of our tours and events and everything else postponed too, um, the, the cupboards are, are starting to get a little bare. Anyway, uh, we're just hoping and and everyone has been, 99% of people have been really great about this, transferring their tickets to next year because they know that it's it's not our fault. You know, there's nothing that we could have done to avoid it. Um, we, we've had a few people who have been less than charitable, <laughs> less than kind, sure. but, you know, the, I, I've, I, they maybe even said this last time we were on, is that, you know, this thing brings out the worst in some people and the best in others. And, you know, it's just something you start to get to roll with. But anyway, everyone's reservations will still be good next year. Their shirts, their after hour events, everything. So, um, you know, we regret postponing it, but, you know, we want everybody to, you know, be able to stay, stay well and stay safe and keep their hands washed and everything until next year. But um, we will be, though, on June 27th, we will be doing a free virtual event. Now, this is not to take the place of the conference, uh, but it will have, uh, you know, a lot of our speakers from this year's event are going to put together some videos uh, and we'll have those available online throughout the day. And we'll probably only have those on for a limited time. So you'll have, you know, maybe a week or so to watch all of them. But we will be hosting it as a, a free event during the day. And uh, plus, we're also posting on Monday a, a fundraiser shirt, a souvenir shirt that's going to be kind of for the uh, conference that wasn't. We just decided that it's better to laugh than cry. Yep. And uh, so we're going to put that up. That's going to help us recover some losses because we there's a lot of stuff, a lot of costs that went into this we can't get back. Uh, but we'll we'll have that posted on the, the conference website. We'll have it posted on the Facebook page and in the newsletter and all that kind of stuff. It's usually for a limited time. That's usually how they do it. A company we work with does those kind of fundraisers. So anyway, that's um, that's the bad news. Um, the good news is that I've had two new books come out yeah. since the <laughs> lockdown started. Uh, Taking Up Serpents came out and yesterday, um, Victims of the Axe Fiend, uh, a different axe murders book uh, that is not Velisca uh, came out um, yesterday. So uh, that's available too. And we've got events coming up in July and August. We've got ghost hunts coming up. We've got, uh, we're going to have fall events. We're going to start posting. And, you know, we're, we are going to come out of this. We're going to bounce back out of this. So uh, people can just take a look at AmericanHauntings.net and they'll see what we've got coming up. But like I said, the, the July and August events, we will be having them one way or the other. They will either be in Alton or they will be across the river in St. Charles County, which is really not that far, uh, which will be one place or the other. We will be having them. So um, keep that in mind if you're interested. So. All right. For sure. Yeah, and I don't I don't know what I'm going to do for the virtual event yet, um, but I have some ideas I'm tossing cool. around. Okay, um, great. And yeah, we'll, that's great. We'll chat about it. But yeah, I'm I'm excited, and um, hopefully it's still something kind of interactive. It'll be um, fun. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to see. But um, you know, moving okay, moving on to, to good news, I guess, or better news. Um, we have some nice listener reviews that I wanted to go through. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, so people still been listening to the podcast and leaving reviews. I know routines have changed and, you know, I usually listen to podcasts in my car on the way to work and that's not really a thing anymore. So I appreciate any any which way people are able to listen and give us a review and hopefully we can help people get through some tough times by making them laugh, you know. Yeah, I'm getting um, a little behind on mine because <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. Catch up on everything, driving back and forth to Alton. And now nothing. I'm trying to desperately catch up on some. 
Wait, you mean you don't just enjoy the really scenic route from Jacksonville <laughs> to Alton and just take in the flat no, scenery? I, usually, <laughs> I gotta have something to listen to. And now my scenic route to work is one block. So right. <laughs> it doesn't get much podcast listening in that amount of time. For sure. Well, some people that have been listening, this review is titled Favorite Podcast. It says, I've been listening to this podcast since early 2018, and it never disappoints. I love the mix of history, paranormal, and the banter at the end. That's from uh, B3XZ. So thank you very much. 2018. I can't believe we've been doing it for that long. I know, right? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, this next one is titled uh, Humor and Deep Dives in the Paranormal Genre. It says, inside the paranormal genre, this for me, uh, this fits right in between last podcast on the left's humor and astonishing legends, informative deep dives. The hosts have a great camaraderie complete with ribbing, and the format of monologue preceding discussion keeps the show engaging. That's from uh, Jared W. Jones. Um, that's like one of the highest compliments I think I can receive. Yeah. I, I love last podcast. Um, I have tickets to their live St. Louis show, which is now pushed back like four months um <laughs> and then we of course love astonishing legends and troy you know did a whole Velisca thing with them um and that's yeah that's just a, a really really nice review so i really appreciate that this last one is just titled love it. it says this is the only podcast i have loved to listen to so far i started with the new orleans series and now listening to older ones it says i do listen all the way to the end and then a little laughing crying face um, so, yeah, thank you very much. And, again, just these iTunes reviews, you know, really help people find our podcast. And um, then, you know, it's nice to hear nice things about us. It's nice to see people not liking us. That's always funny, too. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we get a kick out of it either way. So thanks again. All right. Well, then let's move on to um, from, you know, happy things to not so happy things. Let's talk about some New Orleans epidemics. Yes. So 1832, the city is hit with a cholera epidemic. Uh, You mentioned how everything's closed. People lay dead in their homes because all the carts and things are being used to like haul dead bodies into, I'm guessing, mass graves. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Back then, you know, they didn't have, um, you know, it was just pretty standard burial ground wherever you could. They hadn't realized quite yet that everything needed to be above ground in the old part of the city. So, yeah, mass graves, nasty situation. Yeah, so then they have 23 yellow fever epidemics between 1817 and 1860, killing over 28,000. And in 1868, they decided they're going to build a chapel to honor St. Uh, Roche, Roche, but it didn't yeah, it didn't work, um, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> su- summer of 1878 alone, more than 27,000 died. The last epidemic, you said, was in 1905 when they finally discovered the disease was carried by mosquitoes, and they implemented what you called the shotgun quarantine? Yeah, yeah, just kind of like you know, what we had for a while. It's not quite yeah. that bad, but um, it is uh, it is what it sounds like. So you yeah, don't so leave the house, period. It could, yeah, it could have been worse, I guess, for us, um, but still kind of sucks. So um, <laughs> moving on from the diseases to, uh, let's talk New Orleans fires. So on Good Friday, 1788, one of the city's greatest fires started. And so this is that story you mentioned where the monks wouldn't ring the bells to alert right. the people, but then their monastery ends up burning down. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and then the exactly. city... Then this is when the city is uh, rebuilt by the Spanish, and so that's why you see a lot of that, the architecture that's right, very the clearly brick not brick and French. the plaster and the archways and things. That, it, that isn't French architecture, but, you know, I guess the French still get the credit because they started right. it, you know? So. Right. How, <laughs> yeah, how pissed off would you be to be, like, yeah. the guy that, you know, worked his ass off to build this stuff, and they're like, it's the French Quarter? Uh, yeah, <laughs> still? Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so after fires, let's talk some more floods. So between 1745 and 1927, he said 38 floods in the lower section of the rover, uh, nine times into uh, actually into New Orleans, and a break caused water to flood as far as uh, Charter Street in 1849, flooding 220 squares. And then spring 1927, levees had to be dyn- dynamited to actually save the city. And I'm wondering, like, who's the person I mean, that came up with that idea and had to, like, sell it? They're like, well, oh, it, shit, yeah, it's the well, only I way. Th- I think what it was is, well, I don't know how you'd sell it to the people of St. Bernard Parish, but right. um, selling it to the city, I'm sure, was easy because if they didn't um, – if they didn't dynamite the levees at that point in the river, then the the river would have just kept backing up until New Orleans was completely underwater. Right. So they thought, well, this is better. This is there's a lot less people, a lot less damage to be done uh, out here in the parish on the edge of the area, and so you know we'll just get everybody out of there and blow it up and let it flood. Lovely, <laughs> you know, sucks right. to be those people, but you know, as far as New Orleans went. Uh, you know, it did divert everything and save the city. Right. Yeah, they did did what they had to do, and I'm sure it was right. not an easy decision, but uh, <laughs> seemed to work at least a little bit. So after that, U.S. government steps in to help, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But uh, September 29th, 1915, hurricane strikes uh, with winds over 120 miles an hour, causing 13 million in damage. Then, then 22 inches of rain fell. <laughs> right. And then September 1965, Hurricane Betsy hits the city with winds over 150 miles an hour. And you said the river, it's caused the river to rise nine feet in just a few hours, mm-hmm. which is just seems like... Crazy, right? Yeah, like biblical proportions, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It's crazy. 13,000 homes are destroyed. So I, I think I mentioned this before, but I um, I went through one hurricane when I lived in New, uh, in New York. I went through Hurricane Sandy. Oh, yeah. At first, I was just like, oh, it's just like a tornado, but there's like water. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, there's like a lot of water. Water's <laughs> right, really right. bad. And we lived in the financial district not too far away from Battery Park. So we were some of the first people to get evacuated. And I had 11 roommates. And so we all had to find <laughs> places to go. So we like were just traveling these little like nomadic groups and <laughs> and like staying with people for a week until we kind of overstayed our welcome and then going somewhere else and um i remember walking out one night uh through this place called sty town and it, there's a bunch of trees and stuff there and like branches are falling and like that was like the most dangerous thing to me and i was like and then i found out later like so many people died from falling branches oh, wow. and i was like what are the odds like there's not that many big trees in new york <laughs> but if you're in the right spot yes yeah um, wow and i remember looking out over this railing probably like I don't know there's like 10 15 feet drop and um there was like a lot of debris and stuff there but it was you know pretty just a normal street and then the next day um the National Guard was like floating down that on a boat and the cars were underwater like it just yeah it it got crazy um and yeah it gave me a new new respect and uh fear of hurricanes and and the, the damage and especially because it's not all like you know a tornado comes and just destroys everything and then it's gone but like the hurricane can come and then the floods can come and so it just kind of keeps building on itself and getting worse and worse uh, which we're going to talk about yeah, now with yeah. Hurricane Katrina. So there's basically, um, from my understanding, the way you lay this out, with New Orleans, there's basically a before Katrina and an after Katrina, like version of New Orleans. Right. Say oh, I'd fair? say that's, yeah, definitely accurate um, because it was, a, it was a different city. It really was. I mean, it, it had a tremendous effect. I mean, in modern times, it's it's probably it's the equivalent of, say, the Battle of New Orleans or the, uh, the federal occupation of the city 
during the Civil War. These were major events in the history of the city, and this was another. And um, it, it changed the entire face of the city, um, from the people to the way that restaurants operate to the way that you know, tourism operates. I mean, I've told you several times that you know, when we've been down there and, you know, I talk about how many tours there are again and that it hasn't been that way since before Katrina, because after Katrina, you know, most of them packed up and left. I mean, they they shut down. They went out of business because there was just no tourism, which is probably a lot like what's going on right now. I think that we will see uh, in the wake of this um, pandemic that we've got going on. I think we'll see a lot of changes. There are a lot of tour companies in New Orleans that will not make it through this. They just simply won't uh, because they can't do business and they're just too small to to make it through. I um, mean, it's tough on people who've been around forever, let alone a company that's only you know been around for a few years or you know even a year or two. It's going to be tough. Uh, so this is going to make a big difference. We're going to see a big difference in uh, I mean all over the country, but since we're Talking about New Orleans, uh, I think this is going to be another um, pre and post kind of situation, honestly. But Katrina, at least in our lifetimes, was the biggest event so far that has happened in New Orleans history. Right, right. And so, yeah, so August 29th, 2005, um, the storm comes in, eventually surges into a Category 5, uh, slows down a little bit when it hits land, but the winds are still 120 to 140 miles an hour. And like we talked about before, it's really the aftermath that that did it so 80 percent of the residents are able to evacuate Ten thousand go to the superdome um katrina yeah that's uh, i I can't imagine yeah that's just got to be a nightmare and katrina um passed but then the storm surge breached the levees and drainage canals floods 70 percent of the city um which is just i mean i remember watching this on the news Mm -hmm. when i was you know i was younger but uh i guess it just uh, now that I think back and even, you know, going through a hurricane and then just being older, I'm just like, damn, that must have just been like a bizarre, just, I don't even, I probably, my brain probably wouldn't be able to compute like well, what's it really was a, going on, you it, know? It became an apocalyptic kind of situation. I mean, people were left to fend for themselves. The, the police had evacuated the city, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, you know, there was no help coming. People were just left on their own. You know, people had had headed for the, Superdome because, well, that was the place to go. That's where they were, you know, they were going to help people. They were going to hand out food and water, medical care. And so people just kept coming until there were more than 25,000 people inside. And it just became, I mean, it, it was apocalypse on the street, but inside in this contained area, it was Thunderdome. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. It became this horrific situation. And, you know, there are still rumors about that or, you know, about the wake of Katrina, about the Superdome being haunted. Of course, it's gone now, isn't it? I believe because they believe they replaced it by now or no, maybe they just renovated it. But anyway, there have been plenty of stories about uh, the Superdome becoming haunted. And because of the stuff that was going on, the things that happened there during you know, in the in the days after Katrina, I mean, there was no power in the city. You know, the hospitals had patients that were, you know, critical that had to get out. Um, places that weren't affected by flooding, even those were shut down. I, I know I've told you about that when, you know, the French Quarter was not affected by the flooding, but it emptied out. I mean, everything was closed. Power was out. People were gone. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, there were looters. It was everything. It was everything you can imagine. It was escape from New York. 
pretty much. I mean, it was a nightmare. Right. Um, and then they finally, finally started to get some help. But, you know, it, that didn't happen because, you know, I, I don't, it, you know, we could get into a lot of theories as to why, you know, everything was delayed the way that it was. But the mm-hmm. uh, federal government, I know this will come as a huge shock to you, um, was extremely slow to respond and did not take it seriously for quite some time. No. Um, it was it was fundraising through uh, private individuals and through fire departments and places around the city. I remember being in Chicago and they were outside um, Wrigley Field. You know, firefighters were there, you know, passing the boot to try to raise money uh, because they were sending help down to New Orleans because no one was helping. The government was not helping anyone. Uh, finally, they started to send in National Guard units um, because it was pretty much once again under martial law. They had to send down troops to get everything under control. And even then, I mean, the city sat underwater for weeks and nobody would take the blame for it. The government kept saying it wasn't their fault, but it was. It was the U.S. Corps of Engineers. The Army Corps had been the ones who did not update the i mean man i know i'm getting a little hot here aren't i <laughs> sorry this the whole thing makes me so angry because <laughs> it's right, something sorry. that should have never have happened and then when it did happen and no one responded it was just you know it was a nightmarish kind of thing because it, it shouldn't have turned out that way um the things that happened in the wake of katrina the people that died it just, it, it shouldn't have happened the way that it did. Kind of like the situation we're in right now. Uh, I know I draw parallels a couple of times in my monologue for this, but really it's not that much different. Um, we're seeing the, the same kinds of things and it's thankfully not as bad, but if this had all been confined to one city, let's say this pandemic had happened in New Orleans only, what do you think things would be like there? It'd be right back to how it was after Katrina, yeah. uh, based on the same response we've gotten on a national level. So it's it's a tough, it's a tough, yep. you know, it's one of those, I, I, I told you that I put this in here and that there was nothing cheery about the story. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with jokes, you know, there just aren't any, it's just not, it's not funny. It just, it really, really, we're lucky the city bounced back the way that it did. Right, right. So. Well, Anyway. It's not funny, but that won't stop me from trying. Um, <laughs> well, no, no, I know. You know no, what I, I mean, though. I get it. Uh, no, and I think, it, 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 again, it's it's that gallows humor that if you don't, you know, if you don't laugh, you cry, or if you don't laugh, you, you lose your sanity, right. you know? Um, and I think that's where a lot of us are starting to feel like. Yeah. But put yourself in this situation, though, yeah. you know? Definitely a thousand times worse than what we're dealing with. Gee, we have to sit home and watch Netflix. I know, right? You know, um, it could be a hell of a lot worse, as people found out, that we're living, especially in the really bad neighborhoods underwater, you know, where things were really bad. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, and if I, if anyone, including myself, says the word unprecedented one more time, I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk uh-huh. into traffic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Now, there isn't anything that happens uh, that is... Uh, unprecedented. We've all been through this before, one way or another. Uh, civilization, right. I mean, our ancestors have been through this or worse. You know, um, I, I keep telling everybody, you, you, you know, oh, but look at all this and look at this, and I, could, well, you can imagine what this was like in 1918. Right. You know, when you have 40 million people around the globe dead from the flu. Yeah. You know, a flu that targeted uh, the youngest and healthiest people in our society. You know, imagine what that would have been like. You know, yep. so. This isn't, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. You know, this, we're, we haven't gotten back to, we haven't gotten to the Great Depression yet. 
Uh, maybe it's coming, but we haven't gotten there. So not, nothing is unprecedented. History is always just a series of events that repeat themselves over and over again. And here we are. So anyway, uh, I'll get down off my soapbox. <laughs> Give me a second there and uh, then we can continue on. Perfect. Perfect. So I want to take a couple quotes that you had here. So he said, even today, 15 years later, the exact death toll from Katrina remains unknown, although we do know at least 1,800 people died because of the storm and flooding that followed it. By its own admission, Louisiana never finished counting the dead, um, which is just, it's terrible. Um and uh, you mentioned a couple well, of reasons why. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for that. I mean, not only were there people who, you know, who left because of the storm and died soon after leaving, or there were a lot of people who were trapped in their homes who died who weren't found because a lot of those neighborhoods, especially in the Ninth Ward, that, you know, were just destroyed. And they were not, a lot of them, it was a pretty poor neighborhood. A lot of them were great houses anyway. And uh, people died in those houses and their bodies weren't found for for a year or more later when people would come in to either try to rehab the house or to tear it down. They kept finding bodies. People died all over the place that were were simply never counted. And um, a lot of that has to do with the racial or the racial racial disparity that we often see in New Orleans, which, uh, again, let's not get into the whole debate over why the government delayed everything, but I think that was a big part of it. Um, and especially in those neighborhoods that were flooded, you know, um, l almost highest percentage African-American and people didn't count. They didn't go count the way that they should have. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're never going to know how many people died. We just aren't. Uh, but it's a it's a horrible situation and it's still horrible 15 years later. Yeah. Did they have any other rough estimates or anything that you saw or as I know, I saw this 18. No, that's number. that seems to be yeah, the 1800 seems to be um, kind of a general consensus. I've seen some a little higher and I've seen some that are less, but that seems to be pretty close to the middle of the road. And uh, I'd say it's, you know, it's maybe as accurate. Well, it's as accurate as we're ever going to get for sure. And you mentioned that the culture and economy also took a huge hit since so many people left and then just couldn't come back. You know, they, they had to uproot their right. lives and leave. And so the city was never really the same. Um, so were you at Mardi Gras 2006? In 2006? Yeah. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, it was a ghost town. Yeah. Um, I mean, compared to other Mardi Gras. Um, it, you know, the, the thing was is that when so many people left, you know, the restaurants couldn't. I mean, the restaurants were in the same situation they're in today. The industry hasn't really changed that much. And people found themselves unable to operate after being sitting empty for not only during the time that New Orleans was mostly shut down, but in the months that followed, months and months followed that where people just didn't come. I mean, tourism didn't start picking up for years. I mean, it was a good five years before things started to really get back to normal. And you're talking about bars and restaurants and, and you know, the, the people who work in those things, the musicians who depend on the gigs, the places to play, the bar workers, the bartenders, the restaurant servers who, you know, that's their money depends on tips and their money depends on having a steady income. And they had to go somewhere else. They couldn't stay there and just hope for it to come back because they'd starve. Everybody's got bills to pay and rent to pay. And, you know, again, same kind of situation we're in now. The, you know, the self-employed, the 1099 gig workers, 
they're the people who are really getting hit by this. They're the, the lowest, you know, the, the people that we all depend on normally, but as soon as something goes wrong, well, they're the first people to get sacrificed. And that's the same thing that happened. So a lot of these people took off and they left. And so when you've got musicians and bartenders and restaurant people who have had to leave the city, then people come for tourism when they finally do start coming back to what? It's, it's empty right. because places aren't open. There have been so many places that went out of business in the wake of Katrina, even though their restaurants were never damaged, their buildings weren't, but you know, the, the, the economy just destroyed their businesses. And that was, you know, they, they wanted to have Mardi Gras, even though it was only a few months later in, in 2006, but the situation was, is that there was only so much that could be done. So it was, it really was kind of eerie. I mean, there were people who turned out who, you know, were there because they wanted to support, you know, whatever they could, the, the hotels, the businesses and stuff, you know, that's why people came. Um, but there was only so much you could do. There just wasn't a whole lot that you could do other than show up. And, um, you know, the people who were there were, were there for the best of reasons, I think. Um, and the city did rebound. I mean, it has come, dra- come back, you know, remembering Katrina as this really dark spot in its history. And, you know, 15 years have passed, but man, people still talk about it. It's still the post-Katrina New Orleans. And I don't know. I don't know what things are going to look like come fall there, but I'm going to say that there's going to be uh, less businesses, less bars, less restaurants than there were, say, back in January or last fall. You know, um, New Orleans became a hotspot and probably because they tried to have Mardi Gras this year. And uh, it, and that's probably what happened. But I don't know, man. Um, we'll yeah. see. I guess we're going to see. I think that things will be a lot different in a lot of places. Yeah. This is well, I wanted to end this section with this quote, and we'll see if this quote holds up after the next couple of months. But you said Katrina will always be remembered as the city's darkest hour. And as we know, it's usually those hours that give birth to stories of ghosts and hauntings. So let's talk about some of these uh, ghosts of the aftermath of Katrina. So it seems like the National Guard started like seeing ghosts almost immediately. They did. That was a big, that was big news too. Really? I remember this playing on a lot of different news, I mean like legitimate news stations. I'm not talking about, you know, current affair, or <laughs> right, whatever, right. those kind of shows. I'm talking about, this was a CBS story that played this, the one about the uh, uh, California National Guard at the Sophie B. Rice School. Um, that, and I heard that one a lot, um, in the wake of all this, that, that was one that was really going around that, um, there was more, these were the people I, I mentioned the people who went on record, but, and were interviewed, but there were a lot of things going on in that school and maybe it had nothing to do with Katrina, but the reason that they were having these encounters is because they were there, mm-hmm. you know, because of Katrina. Um, so the haunting, the school was probably already haunted, right. Uh, but now they're experiencing it because they've come to the city to uh, use it as a headquarters. And that was happening in other places, too. That was probably one of the most publicized stories. But I had actually heard it about um, at least a couple or at least one other school. And I'd heard it about some of the other buildings that these people were coming in fresh from different places that were not part of New Orleans, you know, uh, community who really weren't aware of just how haunted the city was who were having these experiences. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. It was a, a neat 
I mean, neat, I guess. I don't know. It's, it was something that kind of kept that culture, that part of New Orleans culture alive. Even during Katrina, we're hearing all the ghost stories. Yeah, well, I mean, the ghosts had new people to play with, you know. And, yeah, exactly. And mess with. <laughs> um, and then there's this story which I find very interesting. She said a few years ago, people started seeing lights turn on in the former charity hospital, despite it not having electricity for more than a decade. But right, they, But they just right. kind of wrote yeah, that, that off. They kept seeing lights turn on in one of the upper floors, and uh, there it appeared to be a Christmas tree. And I, I, I heard that some people had broken in and had found the Christmas tree, and then um, so it really was a tree that someone had had left up there uh, in the wake of Katrina. But somehow it it kept lighting up. Um, it didn't go on for very long. It was kind of a short-lived thing. And the people who mostly, the people who saw it were staff members at, at New Orleans Hospital, which is right nearby. It kind of replaced Charity Hospital. And um, it was, um, you know, police said, oh, somebody's broke in and they've, you know, they've, they've somehow rigged this up. Well, yeah. Uh, but I mean, yes, the hospital had generators, but getting a generator going without anyone knowing about it to light up a Christmas tree seemed like a long way to go for such a minor prank that right. you're not even sure anyone would see. But uh, workers at the hospital were convinced, though, that the, the place was haunted because Charity Hospital uh, was was open uh, at the time of the hurricane, and they were one of the hospitals that, that had to try to evacuate people that couldn't, um, that, you know, people were stuck. I, I don't know if you've ever seen, and I think you probably have, uh, the, the Benjamin Button movie. Oh, yeah. Pitts movie. Yeah. And you remember that... Um, uh, Kate Blanchett's character is the old lady who's in the hospital, but that's a lot of what it was like okay. uh, with them emergency trying to get people out of there and couldn't move everyone. And uh, that was a that was a big charity hospital was a big part of the aftermath of people talking about things that went wrong, you know, in New Orleans during the hurricane. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then there's one story that. Uh, is that's kind of more famous than some of the others, and it was very upsetting at first, but then it kind of has a happy ending. It does so. have a, it does sort of have a happy ending, I suppose. Yeah, you know, or at least it's a little more lighthearted, right? Than so some of the others. So, so Vera Smith, sixty-five years old, goes out August 29th, never comes back. Bodies eventually found at the intersection of Jackson and Magazine, um, and it just lays there. So her husband has to come put a sheet over there because you said the ambulances were busy focusing on the living. So she lays right. there for five days, and then a man named John Lee begs the police to do something. Then he decides, just I'm going to do something about it myself, so he just buries her on the spot. Wrap her in a tarp. They had a cross with the words, here lies Vera. Yeah, God very shallow gold. grave there at the corner Yeah, uh, just to creepy. get her in the ground. And I've seen some photos of the, um, the, 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 they just put a tarp over it and then ringed it with bricks to hold the tarp down over this shallow grave. Uh, and then they painted those words on there. So, right. Yeah. Which is like, just here lies Vera. God help us all. That's like just devastating. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So our bodies eventually recovered, cremated, sent to Texas. Um, and that might've been when the ghost story started. We're not really sure, but the owner of that property is frustrated because he can't sell the place um, and smashes her memorial with a sledgehammer, which is very <laughs> terrible and disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he blamed it on, yeah. you know, the reason he couldn't sell the property is that because her body had been there. You know, and so let's get rid of every reminder of, well, it, I mean, it worked, eventually sold it. So I guess, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, right. So. But still not not cool, dude. But um, no. on that same corner, a two-story burger place called Charcoal ends up being built, which this place to me sounds delicious, by the way, just like I a know, bunch of meats. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, that'd be great. Did you ever get to eat there? Uh, I have not. I I never went there. Uh, I knew about the place, but I never I never had anything to eat there. So got it. It's too bad. I know, I think right? Would have been. Uh, I think I would have liked it. I think. Yeah. So yeah. So that well, the opening does not go well. There's lots of problems. Uh, it said reports about a haunting at the restaurant were taken so seriously that a local television channel dispatched a film crew because it's New Orleans after all. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> which just totally tracks. Um, and then the restaurant contacted Simon Hardveld, who did the original Memorial for Veterans. Like, hey, can you make another one attached to the restaurant? So. You mentioned she finally got the recognition that she deserved, um, which is very nice. But th- is, I'm guessing that restaurant's not there anymore, is it? No, I don't think so. Okay, so I, I haven't look, heard I tried, anything about it in years. Right. So. I tried to find pictures of it, but yeah, uh, but I, I found some pictures. I found some pictures of the building, but um, I it's I don't know when it closed, but it's yeah, it is gone. Got it. And I was actually talking to somebody about doing this Katrina episode, and they were like, there's ghosts from Katrina? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, a ton of people died. There's a lot of traumatic history. Right. And she said, um, you know, I just always think of ghosts as, you know, old Victorian timey people. And I was like, yeah. I was like, a lot of people do, but I was like, you ever stop and think, like, why do we do that, you know? And um, and so this is, it's interesting when you hear a story of something more updated. And I love that. And I think more will come. I think there will still be more as time goes on because, you know, we're often talking when we spent an episode of the podcast talking about the Civil War and ghost stories related to it. And that was, you know, more than 150 years ago now. So I think as time goes on, there will be more Katrina ghost stories. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I guess we'll, we'll sit back and see. And then I'm sure eventually there'll be a whole Corona ghost story thing that comes through. Yeah, Probably. Yeah, probably so. All right, cool. Well, it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. So our first writer is Shannon, says, I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. I've always been interested in all things spooky, and I also love learning about the history behind the hauntings. So I love your podcast. I'm listening to the New Orleans season right now, and you keep mentioning the Bell Witch. I've always been fascinated with the story and have heard many different stories about it. I'd love to know if you were planning on doing a season or something like that about the Bell Witch. I'd love to know more about what is true and what isn't. Also, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this story and what you think the reason was behind it. And you happen to know a lot about the Bell Witch, so much so that you might have a book or two, right? <laughs> Yeah, I did write a book about the Bell Witch um, called Season of the Witch, uh, and it would give you a lot of that information. I also do, um, that's one of the dinner presentations that we do, and I'll be doing it again in the fall. Uh, We haven't posted the dates for the fall things yet, but that's one I'll be bringing back. That was a uh, really fun one that I did before all this stuff happened. Uh, back in February, I did one of those. So, but yeah, um, the Bell Witch story is, um, it's it's regarded as a kind of a classic American ghost story. It's, even though it's called a witch, uh, it's really not a witch. It was just a spirit. And that was just terminology of the time. And so um, this family in Tennessee began to be haunted by this presence who uh, was never was it really seen? Although there were some incident, some incidents, but was it really seen? But it was heard. It actually spoke, and it, it kind of terrorized this family. And it's one of the only stories in American history uh, where a ghost was responsible, or at least took responsibility for the death of one of the people involved in the haunting. So it, it kind of holds a, a very important spot. But it's one of those stories that dates back to the early 1800s. It happened between about 1817 and 1820. And so there's not a, there, there's, there's a lot of firsthand information about it, but there's not a lot of, you know, documented stuff. You have to kind of 
take people for their word, but there were an awful lot of people who witnessed things. So um, it's it's a very cool story. I think there's some legend to it, but I also think there's a lot of truth behind the story too. So um, yeah, I don't know that if we, one of these days we may end up doing a season on it. It's hard to say. We don't even right. know what the next season's going to be yet. So we're you know we'll uh, we'll get there when we get there, I guess. But it, it is a possibility. We'll put it that way. Sure. And in the meantime, yeah, check out that book. Uh, so thank you for that, Shannon. This last one's from Michelle. It says, hi, Cody and Troy. Uh, only found the podcast recently, but I'm really enjoying it so far. I've just started into season three, episode 37 overall, and I'm just wondering if anyone has drawn parallels between this and the X-Men of New Orleans. I could be way off base, but uh, while listening, the memory of hearing about New Orleans case popped up in my head, and I thought I'd ask, keep up the good work. The banter about the outro makes me laugh. Um, so we are going to talk about that eventually. I don't think it'll be. Yeah. yeah, we will. We will get to that later in this season. Uh, a few more episodes before we get to the New Orleans Axeman. But no, it doesn't have anything to do with Velisca, And it also doesn't have anything to do with Louisiana and Texas Axeman murders that I just worked on in that new book, that Victim of the Axemans book. Um, it's, it's one of those popular or has become popular misconceptions that every axe murder had to be connected in some way. Um, and I have to say this once again, and it's something that I've said many, many times. Axes were like the number one murder weapon in America between about 1875 and about 1915 Crazy. because every family yeah. had one. Everyone had one because you had to have them. You depended on your cooking, your heating, everything. You had to have an axe around the house, whether you lived in town or you lived on a farm. And so it was an easy, a very convenient you know, weapon uh, that was always on hand. And when someone would say, a hey, get drunk or would, you know, lose their shit in an argument or something, it was easy to grab an axe and whack somebody with it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of research that has to be done to try to connect some of these murders. Um, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, people get a little carried away and try to connect every axe murder to each other, whether the, you know, modus operandi actually, you know, is consistent. Uh, so unfortunately, that's one of those things that people just hear axe and they think, oh, it must be Velisca or it must be this or it must be that. Uh, but yeah, the, the New Orleans Axe Man had a lot more to do with um, nationality and immigrants and crime. I mean, other crime besides murder than it had to do with a serial killer, um, as we'll talk about when we get to that part of the of this season. How's that? <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, no, it's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Give them just enough without going into spoilers. Uh, so thank you again, Michelle. Again, that's American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we now have some quick Patreon shout outs. So um, I, we, we recorded so many episodes so long ago. Yeah. We built up a yeah. lot of people that need shout outs now. Um, so I just wanted to say uh, thank you for subscribing and, and supporting the show. Uh, thank you to Daniel, Jessica, Sarah, Leslie, Whitney, Carol, Tina, Diane, Diana, Eddie, Kelly, Amanda, Trisha, Jennifer, Amanda, Kelly, Lisa, Rebecca, Amber, Chelsea, and Kelsey. Whew, Good okay. grief. Yeah, we got, we got a lot of people supporting the show. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're I, I put out some new T-shirts out there, and I'm going to put even more, and we're always trying to come up with new things that people like. And Troy's been doing some, you know, uh, more exclusive things and behind-the-scenes things and Friday night live streams and stuff. And um, we're going to try and keep getting creative. Did you see I wore my uh, morbidly curious shirt on a live no, stream? No, I last didn't. Week? I, I pop it. 
So yeah, a lot That's of people awesome. ask. Yeah, that, I've, I've so. you know we've wanted to make that shirt for a long time, and finally I was like, I'm just gonna do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's yeah, that's great. great. I pop and yeah. I'll pop into the live streams every now and then, and you know, give Troy a hard time for a second and pop off. But uh, we could we could figure out <laughs> some more fun stuff to do like that. So thank you again. If you're interested in checking that out, you can go to Patreon.com/slash American Hauntings. Okay, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we're gonna wrap up the show for this week, and uh, we hope that you will continue to share. Uh, the podcast with your friends, leave us reviews on iTunes and, uh, you know, just keep an eye on everything we've got going on uh, because uh, we are, um, we're trying to work and and make sure that there's something fun and entertaining for people to continue to do while all of this other stuff is going on outside in the the real world. We're trying to, uh, to get you into the, uh, into the, into the, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's the unreal world, but it's sort of in a way it is. So yeah. it's fun to, to get to interact and, and have fun with you guys. We, we just started up, we just put up a brand new online store too, by the way, uh, AmericanHauntingsBooks.com. I don't think I mentioned that earlier, uh, but it's know. a, it's completely all, I got a lot of time on my hands. Obviously I've written two books and created a new online store, um, but <laughs> it is uh, all updated and much easier to shop. So uh, please check it out and uh, we will uh, see you next time. Make sure you stay safe and Keep your hands washed and all that jazz. Thanks. So I got a question. Is does 70% of your income go to just domain names that you own? <laughs> Seems like it, doesn't it? <laughs> there's there's so you have so many. You got websites for everything and just every dot not dot com. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'm tired. That seems like a good place to end it. And of course, I'm kidding. So this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we have show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to more from American Hauntings. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast, it's books tours, events, domain names, and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more from us, you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show, and with continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think we'll like what you find at Patreon.com slash AmericanHauntings. Okay, I couldn't, sure I couldn't hold it anymore. I tried not to Any comments you, about the show? Suggestions, I had somebody complain jokes, about me interrupting you, or but just I couldn't help tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable <laughs> via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, by Carrier Pigeon. And honestly, you can just call me. My number is 619. <laughs> Until next time. He's so goodbye, desperate for so someone long. to talk to. He just wants you to just call him. Just talk so. to me. <laughs> just talk to me. We'll see you later. All right. Good night. <laughs>